resistant. Welcome to the second edition of the Zero Inside Information Newsletter. Thank you for listening. As always, let's dive right into it. The title is Al Decadente. Do you like art or do you eat your pasta overcooked? Schiaparelli's wedding dress of terminal descent. Food, finance, fashion and failure. Here at the Jirkov Institute. Let's fire away. Intro. Aperitivo Gingerino after a long day of gioco di rollo dal vivo. The year is 2014. You think about the future. While thinking about the future, you think, what will life be like in the year 2044? In your jaded optimism, you imagine a dystopian future because you are on Tumblr, it's 2014, and that's what you do. All CO2 emissions have gone back to zero. Facebook bought Twitter for the symbolic amount of one Bitcoin. The United States has rebranded to the UnitedStates.com. Life is tech, tech is life. Every Generation Z kid has committed suicide. Little smart home, Little's Alexa, now knows from the data when and where your partner is horny. Turns out it's surprisingly often. Bolivia is a lithium bubble fueled tech hub. CEO is a pronoun. Argentina is a tax haven. Nestle owns the air, IKEA owns the rain. Little's attempt to buy it was in vain. Everybody has more or less back pain. A hot topic at the dinner table is why people don't eat anymore. We're all done with food. Your brain interface computer displays how much crypto you have on your current balance. And every single moment of the day, in the corner of your right eye, your peripheral vision is preoccupied with your financial status. At least, Google Glass didn't become a thing. Your limbic system is shut down. There's no desire anymore. Lock on Lacanian thought about the real is finally eradicated. Yeah, fuck you Freud, you think you can own me? Emotions are obviously happily traded as NFTs. TikTok celebrates the birth of its one millionth ideology. When and where were you when you went outside for the last time? Holy shit, go inside. I don't do drugs, have you seen the sun? Vitamin D stronger than the desire for the D. The year is 2044. 3D rendering is thought in kindergarten. It is the bicentennial, love that word, bicentennial, birth year of Friedrich Nietzsche, which is actually not his death year, not his birth year, but it's the anniversary of his insanity. Everybody is a germaphobe. More people than ever before break a bone by lifting a finger. Therapists, they do tattoos now. Universal healthcare includes one free tattoo removal a year. All social housing is anti-squad. 
and most kids are dead set on becoming a landlord. It's time to talk about the demise of European glamour and the Côte d'Azur of the internet. Perhaps we need to counter this slow demise. Al decadente, do you like art or do you eat your spaghetti overcooked? Every stretch of modernity, Bari, Tokyo, Milan. Let's talk about subjects that matter, that we identify with. Universal, basic, spaghetti. My consulting practice is mainly focused on the challenges at the intersection of spaghetti, analogous development, sauce and economics. In this maison, we are desktop maximalists, obsessed with rendering fat, melting matter to come to pure content, unlocking the taste of fuzzy sets. I exclusively deal with fuzzy sets and tangled fresh egg paintings of meatballs whose elements have degrees of membership of vague qualitative and quantitative data, frequently generated by the means of natural language. Over the last decade, 2015 till now, it truly started in 2015 if you think about it, I've worked with clients and imaginary friends in a wide variety of sectors. A sort of Donnie Darko consulting, unintended, incoherent and unasked for, including computer software, sauce viscosity levels, salt ratios, a quantum polenta so to speak. Good old pure unfiltered big batch stacks. Eat the same every day, so you know you will go crazy. Gioco d'urolo dal vivo means LARP in Italian. This podcast is a ristretto of modernity, over-caffeinated with the goal to do nothing. I usually work one-on-one -on -one with senior executives, but in rare cases, I work with teams or organizations as a whole. Belastingdienst, gemeente, BVG, Twitter. Monsieur? In this Michelin star establishment, we airbrush the pomodoro onto the spaghetti. All right, let me do a quick interruption uh, with some images here. Um, just like last time, I included like a lot of uh, Staxibits, as I called them. Uh, we have Staxibit A, which is a mozzarella water cocktail. Um, why would anyone ever throw away valuable food, even if it comes in the form of liquid? Um, there's a nice garnish of cherry tomatoes and a little bit of basil on the edge of the glass. And then also Staxibit B, uh, which is a YouTube video I made especially for this newsletter. Um, you should go and check it out. It is a video wherein we see uh, a plate of spaghetti and that's all I have to say about it. Chapter 1. Antipasti. The opening to a subprime mortgage financed most pressing dinner. A subprime loan is a loan offered to individuals at an interest rate above prime who do not qualify for such conventional loans, such as individuals who have low income, limited credit history, poor quality of collateral, or poor credit. Is it true that doom-scrolling spectatorship is not necessarily blasting away the cultural ordinance until there's no ammunition left, but rather inflames and inflates the current material to a big smoking helium balloon animal with the frivolous determination of a 40-year-old chain smoker happily lighting another one? Like, I mean, making an Italian ragu that you eat for seven consecutive days, adding more and more pasta to less and less sauce. I was watching an interview that dated back from 2018, wherein they brought all the major players of the 2008 financial crisis back together at a dinner. Personally, I think that's a great idea, bringing all the players together. They should host more of these niche dinner parties, where they bring all the people together from one particular scene. One of these fuckers said, I'm glad the economy bounced back. I stare at the screen in disbelief. A spring rain started to tickle the window of my flat ever so softly as if singing a lullaby. 
In the short circuiting of neurons caused by this statement, I quickly switched tabs to a new emo doing a Lacanian lecture, talking about the real, the empty object of desire and projections. Down the hallway, my roommate audibly spanks his premium mediocre Tinder date. The thought of sex, dominance and Old Testament punishment make my mind snap the fuck back to reality. The economy bounced back? What? When? Kids born in 2001 were 7 in 2008. They're 20 now. They have known nothing but the melanzana of excrement, a technocratic hot pie made of layers of shit from five continents. 09, 10, 11, 12, 14. I do not ever remember bouncing back, but then something dawned on me. I quickly google it. Ah yes, but of course, I'm European. The financial crisis here never really went away, it just kind of stuck around like an old dude at a party that slowly becomes one with the furniture. First it was Lehman Brothers going bust, these fantastic big moods, bankers with boxes, cardboard boxes. Europe was laughing. If I recall correctly, the German Social Democratic Finance Minister, Peer Steinbrucke, said, This is a problem of Anglo-Saxon capitalism. 11 months later, he had a problem. It is then when it turned out our banking system was heavily cucked by the American banking system. It became nothing but very apparent that they had bought envelopes full of fragmentized products looking good on the outside, but all equally worthless on the inside. A sort of proto-Instagram, if you will. Some of these firms were casually booking tiny losses, such as this little-known bank, the Vampire Squid, aka Goldman Sachs, who booked a 2.1 billion quarterly loss. While Obama was doing Clinton 3 with Ben Bernanke, showering the banking system with gold, Europe was finding out that it didn't even have a central bank as a lander of last resort. So we got black swan right up the ass into the euro crisis of 2015, where the idea was that if Greek pensioners have less, that will help Deutsche Bank not go bust. And because Northern European banks had toxic Greek assets up to 160% of their national GDP on their balance sheets, we had to do it. The money went straight to Greece, straight back up north. I think this is wonderfully illustrated by this uh, 2009, the timing could definitely not be better, huh? Uh, Staxibit C, which is a special edition of the two euro coin from Germany. Uh, it, says, it says Bundesrepublik Deutschland, and it has this stick figure that is like dragging a euro along. Um, go and check it out. It looks absolutely amazing. I now deeply believe that this is how we came to the position where we were promised flying cars and all we got was Spotify and Young Lean. I'm serious. Let's think about the decade from a European perspective. One group of balls on the chessboard, very obviously, are the fashion houses. But they're all kind of whack and lame and failing, if I'm not mistaken. I think some of them made losses. Plus, they're all boomers now, right? A Italian fashion designer that will remain nameless said in an interview, I think we're at a turning point where it fashion, that is, will completely go commercial or become more moral. Bitch, you sell bags. Don't you have like 22 factories and 18,000 employees? So I guess that little love story is over, right? Officially unfucking cool. Then there are like these millennial madman fashion designer Wojeks, of course. I think they really knew how to shoehorn a majestic French fashion house into the hyper irony of the mid-tens. Props for that, I guess. But this was very much not a decade of shrooms, red wine and risotto, or even espresso, bacon and catamine. No, this was a decade of cocaine, crisis and insufficient credit. Chapter 2. Primi. A fettuccine of failure. Let's talk about failure in a non-demeaning way, because the beauty of failure is that true humiliation is never in short supply. It's an ego emotion. An emotion that is unshareable. Unlike sadness, anger, etc., 
Humiliation and jealousy are deeply coupled emotions, I think. I think they're not necessarily direct opposites of one another, but I do think they're kind of coupled together, as twins. Humiliation is special because it's actually nobody else that cares about you being humiliated. If you ever get humiliated, people leave the room and maybe somebody tells a funny story to a person or maybe somebody else tells a funny story, but other than that, nobody cares for one more second after that. You have to let it go. I think jealousy is in that sense also an ugly emotion. If you tell somebody that you're jealous of I don't know, whatever, you can't really do anything about it. You just have to eat it. You just have to let it go. Maybe you lay awake at night for hours and hours and hours, but usually it's almost a very bodily limbic system type of decision that when you just say like, okay, fuck it, no more of this, I'm over it. And the situation declares itself done. In that light, I would like to talk about Schiaparelli, both in the previous century and in this century. An Italian fashion designer and a Mars lander of the same name. The European Space Agency in a staunch rivalry between NASA, Coco Chanel and the two Schiaparellis. Couture designs are garments made to measure for individual clients. They're usually like the height of luxury in terms of textiles and attention to detail, maybe even in creative intervention. Now, this is basically like the biggest jerk off in the field of dressmaking techniques and finishings. Couture houses, like those of Elsa Schiaparelli, offer the highest standard in luxury. Pinnacle of bullshit, as well as the pinnacle of shopping. It was Italian fashion designer Elsa Schiaparelli, along with Coco Chanel, which was interesting enough, her greatest rival, she was regarded one of the most prominent figures of the fashion world in between the two world wars, the interbellum. And she started out with some knitwear and her couture designs were heavily influenced by the Dada Surrealists, which is of course also like an interbellum art phase and some of her collaborators included Salvador Dali and Jean Cocteau. Salvador Dali has this hilarious line that he's a painter for the Freudian age, the atomic age, which is of course why he was obsessed with like slow motion, high speed photography. He has this painting about the crown of milk, which is basically just a microscopic high speed photo of a drop of milk splashing into a pool of milk and creating this crown effect. Total jerk off avant la lettre. Whilst in Paris, Schiaparelli, Schiappe, to her friends, began making her own clothes. She started her own business, but it closed down in 1926, despite favorable reviews, which is a power move if you ask me. She launched her new collection of knitwear in 1927 using a special double-layered stitch created by Armenian refugees, featuring sweaters with surrealist trompe bleu images, which is this crazy, like, actually highly specific French thing. Paintings of buildings and perspectives on buildings, fucking weird. I again included an image, uh, this is Exhibit D, uh, this is some straight up crazy trompe l'oeil mansion with like uh, woodwork functioning as the perspective. I think one of my personal life goals is to live in a weird mansion later on, a very mansion-y mansion. Doesn't have to be big, just has to be weird architecture because I still feel that architecture is in a way the strongest manipulation. Some of her first designs appeared in Vogue. The business really took off with a pattern that gives the impression of a scarf wrapped around the wearer's neck. Poulespoir was a collection the following year, including a bathing suit, ski wear and linen dresses. What I think is weird is this is like the 20s of the previous century uh, and it really resembles like some sort of like late capitalism, which by the way is a term I hate. I mean, it's a bit presumptuous, I think, but drugs tourism to Berlin is like the first notion of people doing cocaine in a sort of like clubbing environment. So this is like over 100 years ago. And I believe it was actually Dutch tourists going to Germany in the early 20s. But then also this sort of like ski resort, Proto Prada collections in 1927. 
I feel like there was already really some sort of like epitome of modernity going on. And of course, you have like the Nazis using metamphetamines for strategic, totally non-psyop reasons. Schiaparelli added evening wear to her collections in 1931 using luxury silks. And the business really went from strength to strength, culminating in a move to Place Vendôme, uh, which she uh, there, like she got a shop and she rechristened it Chapa uh, Shop. <laughs> which I think is funny. A darker tone was set when France declared war in Germany in 1939. So in World War II, they didn't really like start fighting right away. Uh, first, you sort of had this uh, winter of chilling that they called the phony war, which I think is crazy is that she responded to that with like a 1940 collection featuring like trench brown and camouflage prints. That's not unlike Versace doing a Syrian civil war themed collection, the little Hamas uh, golden bikini. Then again, Call of Duty did like a Syrian civil war game and Reska had ISIS merge, so I'm conflicted. Maybe it's like nothing out of the ordinary. It does feel a little off though, since Dada was basically like a movement against the craziness of war and her turning up to the function like, yo, I guess it's gonna be camo this year. What you gonna do when the big G roll through? After the fall of Paris, which I think we can't even begin to understand how dramatic that was because like people expected four or five long years of trench warfare and it was over in less than three weeks. So this is basically like Luxembourg attacking the United States and like in 14 days, it's all over. Uh, she moved back to New York because she was on a lecture tour apart from a few months in Paris in early 1941 to remain in New York City until the end of the war, which makes me think like people still traveled? That's crazy. On her return, she found that fashion had changed and that Christian Dior had broken through with his new look, making it a rejection of pre-war fashion. Schiaparelli really struggled in the austerity of the post-war. Schiaparelli discontinued her couture business in 1951 and finally closed down heavily indebted to her design house in 1954. The same year, her great rival Coco Chanel returned to the business. In 1945, Schiaparelli published her biography, Shocking Life. Great title, if you ask me. And she lived out a comfortable retirement between Paris and her apartment in Tunisia. She died on the 13th of November 1973 at the age of 83. Schiaparelli is one of the designers credited with offering the first clothes with like visible zippers. So that sounds like, yeah, she was like truly, truly modern. This is something we still do today. And she like came up with that shit. Like rather than being concealed, the zippers were a key element of these designs. Visible fastenings and the neck zippers and stuff. Lines running down sleeves and skirts. She used chunky plastic zippers made from cellulose nitrate, which is actually plastic. She also used like the first semi-synthetic plastic fabric. So yeah, this is really some sort of like product kind of it girl, you know, she would probably be, she would probably be carrying like a laptop bag if she wasn't born in the previous century, but in the girl boss century. Schiaparelli was also renowned for her like unusual buttons, for example, candlesticks, playing cards, emblems, ships, crowns, mirrors, and crickets. I think a mirror button, that's like quite elegant, no? Uh, to, so to me, this is like the height of luxury. Uh, let's imagine if you have sex with somebody and you start to unbutton the dress or the jacket or whatever the fuck they're wearing. And the last thing you see is like a glimpse of your horny face reflected in this mirror button. I mean, that's quite good, no? That's, that's quite hilarious. This is some American psycho type fucking. I think that's a real comment on sex positivity, mirrored buttons, like in an anachronistic way. I thought that the mirrored button was such a good idea that I made a quick render where we see a close-up of a button and um, a film still of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. 
The failure of her business meant that Schiaparelli's name was not as well remembered as that of her great rival, Coco Chanel, but in 1934, Time magazine placed Chanel in the second division of fashion, which I think it still remains, huh? Uh, whereas Schiaparelli was one of a handful of houses now at or near the peak of their powers as arbiters of ultra-modern haute couture, matter and more original than most of her contemporaries, is one of whom the word genius is applied most often. Time magazine recognized that Chanel had assembled a fortune of some 15 of some 15 million US dollars before the war, which is, I think, a crazy amount back then, like corrected for inflation, especially correct for the inflation crisis of 1971, not at the present level of inflation. Schiaparelli had relied more on her inspiration rather than her craftsmanship. It was not long before every little dress factory in Manhattan had copied her from New York 3rd Avenue to San Francisco Howard Street and millions of shop girls who had never heard Schiaparelli's name were proudly wearing her models. And I think this really taps into this idea that like the highest honor as a creative is the invention of a cliche. That's really what you want, right? make something that everybody else copies and it becomes an instant classic. That's really what's gonna fill this like tiny narcissistic black hole in your heart uh, left by your parents. All right, enough history. I low-key hate history. It's a bit boring, eh? Skip ahead one boomer's lifetime, and I'm sitting here for years and years. I've tried to make sense of things that just happened. Retreating in a fantasy world as escapism because it parallels science fiction. In the sense that in the sense that LARPing science fiction in the mid-tens was funny, as funny to speculate about the future, but as soon as science fiction became real, I mean, just look at the fucking window, and you live in this dystopian and boring world, it's actually kind of harrowing. And not that funny at all. I think your role as an artist is to use good vision to escape into your own fantasy world has been cut short by the fact that we're now all so lonely and isolated. Straight up atomized even. So when you work in Art Academy and you have fun syncing with your mates and you have fun syncing with your mates using the means of production your Art Academy has to offer, you don't have to organize anything. Art school is this big belated coming of age extravaganza for by daddy issued plague teens who had difficulties in high school. As soon as you graduate from Art Academy, you're probably going to take a shared studio space. And then usually you end up with morons. It's really disappointing. I think this is because coolness and organizational skills are in direct opposition of one another. It's hard to organize anything. Being cool comes with this lackluster attitude towards the world and ultimately towards life. I also think it's fundamentally wrong that there is nothing cool but tech. Millennials really went from I love tech to boy, do I hate tech in a very rapid movement. Yet I'm conflicted. I feel this analog stuff can never really escape hipster dumb. Anyway, that's maybe its own form of nostalgia that has to be stopped. Becoming Forbes hipster of the year 2009. It's not great. I mean, I'm still very much into early 2010 strange deranged tech content. There's this wonderful video from 2012 where Jack Dorsey of Twitter claims he's still punk. Hate to break it to you, dude, but you can't really be punk on a laptop. That's actually arithmically impossible. I think it's really good if we just try to define some terms here. So I've divided the previous decade into three epochs. Uh, I think 2013, 2015 was like this jaded optimism. I remember very well like a concert in Amsterdam, like showing drone footage of the Tesla mega factory as some sort of still like, sort of like, yeah, this is what's gonna be, huh? good luck. And then 2015 to 2017 was like this hyper irony phase. Uh, Crocs. Crocs on the catwalk. That's all I have to say. And then 2018 to 2020, you had this like frivolous LARPing where 
suddenly everything was up in the air and like that of course ended with the pandemic also and then like now i strongly feel that we're in a new epoch which is like 2021 to 20xx and uh there's probably like some truly complicated spaghetti not only fashion designers are called schiaparelli marslander robots are also called schiaparelli the 230 million euro schiaparelli had spent seven months traveling 496 million kilometers on board the so-called trace gas orbiter to within a million kilometers of Mars when it set off for its own mission to reach the surface. After a scorching supersonic dash through Mars' thin atmosphere, it was supposed to glide gently towards the planet's surface. For safe landing, the Schiaparelli had to slow down from 21,000 kilometers an hour to zero and of more than 1500 degrees centigrade, generated by the atmospheric drag. It was equipped with a dischargeable heat protective shell, a parachute and nine thrusters to decelerate. On top of all that, a crushable structure in its belly to cushion the final impact. I feel souls are also made of a crushable structure, but that's probably some 2018 type doomer shit complex that now has to be stopped. The landing site of European spacecraft that was supposed to make a historic touchdown on Mars had been identified by images that suggest the probe suffered a violent collision with the surface. Images from the NASA Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter show a large fuzzy dark patch that scientists think was caused by the huge plums of dust thrown up in a high-speed crash that may have even indicated an explosion upon impact. The parachute was released from the Schiaparelli ahead of its final landing sequence, during which its nine thrusters should have slowed it down to a walking pace just above the surface. But the data beam back from the lander to its mothership, the Trace Gas Orbiter, that its thrusters only fired for 3 or 4 seconds rather than the 30 seconds as intended, for further 19 seconds before going awfully silent. Um, arriving at Stacksibit E, uh, we see we see Schiaparelli's grave on the surface of Mars. Uh, this photo is courtesy by some NASA nerds. Um, it has a nice graphic design actually. So here I imagine this scene from the mission control center that is like quite elaborate in its setup. We have all these like data screens with live graph feeds and a bunch of nerds that studied their whole lives for this come together. That is probably as close as a full erect boner of technology as one can possibly get, aligning two points in space million kilometers away from the earth, threading an extraterrestrial needle with shaky hands and very, very, very long arms. The Schiaparelli is ready to land and starts its landing sequence and as you know some of these kind of spurgy looking dudes are like sweating over their mechanical keyboards and their anime figures aligning the top of their desk. They're all sitting in these semi-circle computer array screens. Up top, the roof is black with tiny white bright LEDs equally distributed, but also in a kind of a random pattern. So the reflections kind of resemble the starry night. Every single one of them is wearing these like funky telemarketeer headsets to communicate with mission control, of course. And this is where the computer of this Mars lander just casually decides it's not at the actual correct height of four to five kilometers above the surface of Mars, but rather the computer thinks it's at minus five below the ground. So instead of 30 seconds, the thrusters switch on, but they only continue for four seconds, decelerating the Mars lander jack shit. Parachute opens and instantly rips, forming this beautiful dress coming down the surface of Mars at the speed of 300 kilometers an hour. I imagine this must have been like the most beautiful fashion performance of all time. This wide grayish tech fabric of the parachute just roaring through the orange brown atmosphere of Mars in an entirely deconstructive death spiral 
tumbling and ripping and making these crazy sounds. I imagine it as strange laser-like sounds made by the whipping of the carbon fiber parachute ropes overlaid by a chorus of rip and tear of high-tech materials. All the while, a continuous drone of the rushing wind dips the whole ensemble in an existential death wish. And then I imagine these Italian nerdy looking engineers just looking at the screen of the live feed and going, cazzo. In the design process, I also think there would probably have been some like semi-competitive European squabble among the engineers of the ASA uh, about like what, who does what, you know, the fan, like these fancy humorless Germans, as always, they're just like pointing at each other and saying like, you know what, you know what would be funny? You know what would be really funny? It's a multi-million dollar project. I think it would be really funny if we let the Italians make it. <laughs> Ending up with this very stylish Versace looking Mars lander with like beautiful little details, but completely dysfunctional. And that fashionable little Mars lander ending up in a disintegrating ball of fabric, fire and foam. Scientists now think that after thrusters had switched off, the Schiaparelli plummeted in a freefall from a height between two and four kilometers and hit the surface at more than 300 kilometers an hour. The fuzzy patch, which is roughly like 15 by 40 meters wide, would indicate it, the halo of distributed surface material. In other words, it fucking exploded. Speaking before the lander was identified, Jorge Vago, the ExoMars project scientist, said, it is critical for the team to work out what went wrong. Of course, we're all disappointed that the landing didn't go well. The silver lining is that we have a lot of detailed information, he said. I think we'll be able to explain it. I think we'll be able to explain it. Now, that's a nice way of framing a failure, right? Like, completely failing, your whole project just blew the fuck up, quite literally. And then you say, like, well, at least we have information about it, what went wrong. <laughs> Both Schiaparelli's, fashion designer and Mars Lander, are, as I imagine, some sort of, like, falling angel symbolizing a cascade of diminishing return curves. Very European, in a way. Closing this chapter is Staxibit F. Um... I made a render where we see Schiaparelli's terminal descent uh, with a dress that is a dis dysfunctional parachute. It's up on YouTube. Chapter 3. Secondi. Parmigiana a precarietta. It is hard to accept the for real in the sense that like it's hard to adjust to 3D printed materials with the self-same reference quality as for instance paint. I think material properties still play a huge role here. Paint is paint. It's performative in and of itself. 3D printing is just very 2015 in a way. I think it's crazy how the American technocratic answers to the financial crisis of 2008 actually completely worked. The banks paid off their wall of money that was supplied by Ben Bernanke and the Fed. Yes, it was a sticky recovery, but as of Q3 2009, the economy was back on 2% GDP growth again. That doesn't remove the fact though that this was a jobless recovery. And it's something that we have seen after the dot-com bubble of 2002 as well. The economy recovered, and sadly, you had this jobless recovery. The economy bounced back, the growth was restarted, but people were still unemployed. During the Brexit debate, this one dude went up north and said like, Yeah, if you do this, like if you vote for Brexit, blah blah blah, you'll slash the GDP, you just don't want to do it. And this one bloke in the audience just like got up and sat straight to his face, your GDP. Meaning, what the fuck do I have to do with slashing the GDP if all the money ends up in London anyway, right? Fuck that. So, this obviously spawned like a level of populism and the financial crisis underwent some sort of metamorphosis into a profoundly political one. Although, 
the latest books on economics are now debating this. And this is a fair point, because populism was on the rise since the early 90s. I mean, Nigel Farage, for instance, started his campaigns in 1992, long before any sort of financial crisis and when there was still like prosperous economic growth. There's a new book out by this Bulgarian economist Albena Asmanova, who works in Brussels, and the book is called Capitalism on Edge. The central thesis of the book is that precarity is much more the origin of populism than inequality as a measurement. Inequality is some sort of like weird measurement that doesn't actually amount to anything in terms of redistribution. It is uninteresting by default. Precarity, which I think is a much better value in the sense that you don't really care that other people own a BMW. You don't really look up to people that are owning more mansion-y mansions than you do. But what you look up to is a system of security or a system of sustainable growth over time on a personal level. Stack exhibit G is a nice uh, two by two of tech and alienation in the workforce. Um, we see automation versus augmentation and alienation versus autonomy. Um, they're all equally terrible though. She has done these interviews with millionaires and billionaires that also talk about, albeit in a way that probably will grind on your ears. I'm in this toxic job, I want to get out of this job, but I really don't know how because I worry about my kids or my grandchildren or like these houses and these assets I have, which I mean, obviously quotes like this are completely laughable. But on the other hand, the fact that these people feel these grievances also show that precarity is something that forgoes all and goes all the way to the top. That made me think about this absolutely hilarious working conditions survey by Goldman and Sachs and Co. LLC from February 2021. It went viral last week, but it wasn't like so prominent on Twitter, I guess. And this is a survey that Goldman Sachs did in their investment banking division with their first year analyst. They're asking a couple of respondents some fairly basic questions about how it is to work at Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, you should know, is also known as the vampire squid. Goldman Sachs is simply the Gucci of banks. The biggest investment bank. In terms of cream of the fucking crop value, man. This is the purest fucking Arabica coffee that is being served al banca on a daily basis. These kids usually short their own clients. They really know how to do this. This is not some other type of like clownesque Lehman Brothers kind of bullshit bank. No, this is the Davo of skiing resorts. This is where people that make anoraks buy their anoraks. So I thought it would be nice to go through this like PDF that I found. I thought it would be perfect to overlay it with some cyberpunk music or alternatively some Doom OST music. So we're going to do that now. I uploaded the video to YouTube. The link is in my transcription. It's a beautiful PDF looking amazing on average at first. Boom, right off the bat, first question. How many hours have you worked this week? 105 hours is the mean. How many hours have you worked per week on average since January? 98 hours. How many hours do you sleep on average? five hours a night on average. What time do you go to sleep? 3 a.m. Then they have this like little spectrum they made. If working conditions stay the same, what is the likelihood that you will still be working at Goldman Sachs in one month? Mean, 8.1 on a scale of 10, of course. And then they ask the same question. What if working conditions here stay the same and do not improve over six months? 3.5 out of 10. Then we go to the good stuff. This is, you know, like, this is the, this was just an antipasti. Now we're getting the primo before we move on to the secondo. Uh, this prime piece of meat of mental health disorders at fucking Goldman Sachs. Rate your mental health score before and after starting this job. 1 to 10, with 10 being the healthiest before. On average, 8.8. .8. After, 2.8. 6% decrease. Rate your physical health before and after you started this job. 9.0 to 2.3. Have your work hours negatively impacted your relationships with your family and friends? 100% of the correspondents said yes. Do you feel victim to workplace abuse? 
77% yes. Have you sought or considered seeking counseling, therapy, or any additional services for your mental health due to the stress of this job? 100% yes. Have you frequently experienced unrealistic deadlines? 100% yes. 100% of the correspondents said yes to like most of these questions. Have you experienced being shunned or ignored at meetings? 92% yes. Have you experienced frequent excessive monitoring or micromanagement? 83% yes. Question, how satisfied are you with the firm? Median, 2.0 on a scale of 10. How satisfied are you with your work life? 2.0 on a scale of 10. How satisfied are you with your personal life? 1.0 on a scale of 10. These people have made it into the royalties of our banks. Like, this is all they ever wanted, right? Now we're gonna go on to the secondo, the beautiful piece of meat on the Italian dinner table. These come in the form of some select quotes of analysts. So these people are like my age that are working there. Quote, the sleep deprivation, the treatment by the senior bankers, and mental health and physical stress. I've been through foster care. This is arguably worse, one guy said. I can't sleep anymore because my anxiety levels are through the roof. My body physically hurts all the time, mentally, I'm in a really dark place. It's less frightening to me than what my body might succumb to if I keep up this lifestyle. There was a point where I was not eating, showering or doing anything else than working from morning until after midnight. I didn't come into this job expecting a 9am to 5pm, but I also didn't expect a consistent 9am to 5am either. What is not okay for me is that it took me 110 to 120 hours over the course of a week. The math is simple. That leaves four hours a day for eating, sleeping, showering, and the bathroom and general transition time. This is beyond levels of hard working. This is inhumane abuse. I really think that these documents work as a great counterfactual to this idea that inequality is the be all end all. Like these kids have it literally all. And if you just one moment think about winning the game, so to speak, living in New York, being Patrick Bateman, they are all wearing a full face helmet with the inside made out of mirrors. They see nothing but themselves all day long and they don't like it. Basically getting to live your full American psycho narcissistic journey off dream. Then this survey really shows that these people are deeply unhappy. These people need to be cuddled. These people need a fucking teddy bear and a good carbonara and a little bit of peep show and then they can move on again. Because this is in fact not even trying to reach and encapsulate some sort of empty object of desire. This empty object that turns out to be a big bag of excrement being unleashed into their soul. Drug addiction and art school, you at least choose yourself, you know. There's like a degree of freedom in that. But these people have to do complicated math all day for a boss that probably doesn't even understand the brand of it, let alone the nitty gritty. Work at Goldman Sachs is pure in the sense that what it is, is purely shit. People say you cannot spit into the soup, but what if the soup is made out of spit? I think this really taps into this Tinder idea where people want to be fuckable more than they actually want to fuck. Hedonism is an equation where people seek pleasure but avoid pain. It's a two-part equation. We model and predict our behaviors and the results of those behaviors because if we're experiencing the pain, if we find the pleasure, it's already too late. The limbic system in the end is just a fucking monkey riding an elephant. Elephant, you know you can't just say like yo hit me up with some free serotonin it never be like that these people at Goldman Sachs have been working like there's no tomorrow or better yet like there is only tomorrow they have the leeches on the corpse and they're opening up the veins it's much better to be a vagabond who takes ecstasy up the ass and puts soy sauce in the bath instead of bath salts because they ran out all the while eating Chinese takeout food that floats in the bathtub
be on the run with your Capri Sun. Because what these people don't know is that your brain doesn't know, but your heart can always tell. You gotta love the Baroque end of hyper-individualism. It's literally better to doom scroll. This is not demi-abusive. This is abusive-abusive. And these hyper-capitalist managerial class bosses, they usually just come back to the shaggy defense. It wasn't me. Chapter 4. Contorno. Zucchini alla poverella. Cross-country lines, olive oil and butter. I think it's really time to end this self-depreciating humor. It's much more fun to make absurd jokes. They're self-confident in a way. Except the absurd. I think the I want to die Twitter joke of 2014 has died itself. And it's not so healthy in a way. I'll be the king of your castle. There are more options than ever. Just pick one. You're good at huh? Or so and so? Don't follow your passion. Your passion will follow what you're good at. So pick something you're good at. Nobody is born with a passion for tax auditing. Yet there's people that are good at it and it became their passion. Make your life absurd and soon the absurdity will become your passion. I'm not talking about this British absurdity. No, no. Again, it's like my previous episode. Should be artisanal absurdity. A postmodern calzona, a chicken dudum with basil, a rhizomatic risotto, you name it. Don't give up on life. Don't ever get a dog and make sure you never pat a burning dog. To quote Mark Blythe, but here is what is this year's wonderful thing about the United States. And it's the old Mel Brook lines on this one. It is good to be the king. Because the United States is a barbell economy. Ever picked up a barbell at the gym? The reason you can lift a lot of weights is because of, is because it's perfectly balanced on both sides. You know, this is the only barbell economy in the world. When things are going well, everybody comes here and borrows dollars and puts them aside. Because when you get higher a time, when things go to hell in a handbasket, then you can liquidate everything and turn your dollars and bring it back home. Whatever happens, people come to America to make money on the way up as well as on the way down. They expect the American economy to grow 8% this year. Be a barbell. I think by far the best weekends are chilling with a touch of productivity and a hint of bitch. I'm not in favor of the Belgian weekends where you wake up on a Saturday and you think it's Monday because you partied all week. Even worse to me is the Dutch weekend. We need to do things in the house, go out hiking, get a head start of the week, already start working on a Sunday, etc etc. The absolute pinnacle of neurosis is by far the Danish weekend, where one allows oneself a restrained celebration, one boiled egg, rigorous cleaning, hang laundry consisting out of t-shirts in a gradient from white to grey. This is not even about some optimization bullshit. No. This is a dinner table that has to be swiped with a cloth while the guests are still eating. Wait, is this happening? What time is it? It's 2am. Okay, look. I must admit, I love people that are like, stop interrupting me while I'm interrupting you. They're per definition niche. And niche is the best you can get at this moment. Welcome to the Matrix 4. A theater of cruelty made up out of stretchy days, where it's easy to be handsome, but hard to be hot. Most people have been in 1% and airplane mode for a while now, surfing on apps where doom scrolling is literally the business model. Most people are probably studiously avoiding to become too self-aware, and rightfully so. Character development can be entertaining for others, but can be quite the adventure for thyself. Being gaslit by weather apps that every day say it's sunny but actually, it's very much raining. I think negative thinking is next level big brain. Only autodidacts are free. It would be much more interesting to have a workshop on the power of negative thinking. It's going to be terrible, but at least you'll be insane afterwards. Upon completion of the course, you'll feel the data is in. I'm ready to go on a new autistic tangent. <laughs> what time is it? 2 a.m. Thanks, I'm well aware of the fucking time. 
most art has aged like a fine cheese in a humid basement. I think it's time to invent something super crappy super fast. Let's see if somebody's d'accord with me. I feel right now we're stuck between an American and a German system, where the German system is working with trade unions and apprenticeships and incremental improvements. So this is how you get, for instance, a Mercedes or a BMW. You basically start a company and then 200 years later, you have the perfect car, which almost has nothing to do with innovation. Like every time you take out an ounce of the fucking thing and make it better and better and better. Whereas the American system is much more based on innovation, but only in a world of bits, I guess. So you take something like technologies that were invented by the military and then you stick them into a shiny box and everybody thinks like, whoa, that's an amazing iPhone. Sextibit, Sextibit H is like uh, an old meme. I think it's from 2013, uh, which is a rock versus the iPhone 3G from 2008. And uh, I've captioned it, if you would only know how bad things really are. So Steve Jobs is a genius, supposedly. Huh? How many of these six critical technologies did Steve motherfucking invent? Touchscreens. Who invented touchscreens? United States Air Force. Taxpayer dollars. Called Lodestar. TCP IP DARPA. Secure communications in the event of a nuclear attack. Backbone of the internet. Well, you got GPS. United States Navy Global Positioning Satellites. You're seeing a pattern here? Taxpayers paid for all of this stuff. Where's your equity? Sure, you didn't get it. We just gave it to the private sector because entrepreneurs are so awesome. Yeah, when they put it into a shiny box and we all go, oh, that's cute. That has now stalled a bit. In the sense that like the other days told me like, yo, I bought a new iPhone. And I'm like, brah, I couldn't be less interested. I feel that the iPhone hasn't fundamentally changed in years nor like getting a new smartphone. It used to be an event that is now in no way like an event anymore. But has it stalled or was it a scam all along? I feel our subject today is not so much a puzzle that fights back like some cool hacker, some cool hacker type shit you see in spy movies, basically a combination between a stress ball, a Rubik's cube and a squirming octopus in the form of an algorithm with a small consciousness. I feel it's more a collage of puzzles that has been spread over the floor where the pieces don't fit and the colors don't match. Yet, you don't have the tools to create new pieces. So it kind of becomes this minestrone of elements, not truly forming a soup. You can pour the best four hours stock over the elements, boiling hot, but it doesn't really lead to synthesis. Lately, I'm quite obsessed with this idea of the trilemma. The trilemma is a triangle of problems where you can connect two of the corners, but not the third one. So you will have to make a choice. You will have to drop something. The trilemma comes about in our work quite often. Unlike a dilemma, which has two solutions to one problem, a trilemma offers three equal solutions to a complex problem. Usually this is in economics, but they're also in real life. I think a good example is, uh, for instance, the triangle between money, time and social life. You can't have all three. You will have to choose. If you manage to get all three, you either think you're God or you're a maniac. I think the same goes for quick success and progress. Progress disappoints in the short run, but surprises in the long run. You're not a lottery ticket and you won't get the cake for free. That means that you really have to work at a problem. You probably later on will still be confused, but hopefully on a higher level. Either that or you get instant permanent brain damage. Stacksibit J uh, is a meme where we see Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. Patrick, uh, we should do it. Get married, have a wedding. And he replies, no. I can't take the time off Instagram. I captioned it, uh, Babe, you've barely tweeted in the last nine seconds. Are you okay? 
Again, I would like to welcome you to The Matrix 4. And one thing is sure as shit, The Matrix 5, 6, 7 and 8 are well on their way. Any person with an analytical mind and a cheerful light demeanor right now is stuck in a trilemma between the horse of a bull and the horn of a unicorn. All three of you are laying face down on the bed. It begs the question, why is everybody suddenly doing these trend reports? You see trend report meme pages, you also see a lot of graphs, uh, like being cancelled by infographics itself has become a meme. I'm wondering if this is... I'm wondering if this is because people are super future orientated all of a sudden, or is it because they're stuck in this like Fukuyama-ish journal now, or veering back into modernism or something? This is an American thing where people try to commodify every last single bit of fucking life by predicting the market, rather than the European version of making a prediction in private and then bitterly claiming victory long after the battle is over. I think... This is also what is crazy about these podcasts where people basically read Twitter into a mic supplemented with some lukewarm takes in between and ask good money for that on Patreon. This is something that Europeans could never do, I feel. I think they're too ashamed, too self-conscious. They care too much about what essentially has happened over the last, say, 15 years, and I refuse to use the word democratization here, is the opening of a transatlantic rift between gatekeepers putting tariffs on content and hive mind content mining. To me, the thing I look back on with the most hilarity in my mind is the Twitter Facebook prediction that they would bring democracy to the world through tweeting and posting. We went from growth and gatekeeping to a hive mind free for all. Why is the top comment always funny? Simple, there's always somebody funny in the audience that makes the best joke. The audience is infinitely funnier than the comedian if they would have given equal prep time and equal play time. Besides, most comedians are fucking unfunny. Look at what's happening in Europe. Here we still depend on gatekeepers. Germans still want to do an apprenticeship. They still want to work somewhere and they don't dare to go into this free-for-all. But it's not working for anyone else either. This free-for-all is more random than ever. So the gatekeepers are still like huddled around their gates trying to protect some sort of last sort of sense of European glamour in a last-ditch effort to produce actual quality. They're sitting along the Côte d'Azur of the internet I won't name what it is, but deep in your heart you know it. They're hoping for a last glimpse of the sun, but in actuality, they're sitting there with the fucking rain streaming in their face, smelling their breath, building up in a narrow space between their mouth and their masks. That particular smell after a typical European breakfast consisting out of, consisting out of industrial cigarettes, black coffee brought up to temperature with cold water. Stacksibit K, another YouTube video I made. Uh, it's titled uh, Live on a Laptop, Restretto of Modernity. On the other side, we have the white with a greenish U teeth tech liberals. They've been skimming off the hive mind, trying to organize a quantum film festival Le Caen with a maximum resolution of 600 by 600 pixels. There's this hilarious video of Peter Thiel saying, yeah, I always thought that Berlin would be an amazing place to move to for people that are interested in tech and innovation. I always thought that Berlin would be the place where great things were about to happen. And now I've come to the conclusion that ambition is not cool in Europe. And by the way, Berlin is a city where people move to in their 20s to retire. I think that these non-events that I talked about a month ago are more and more prevalent in one's own life. I started thinking about some sort of mediocalypse, a mediocre apocalypse. We, for instance, don't really face heart rejections anymore. It's usually some sort of soft rejection. 
it kind of closes in on you as a blip on the radar and then passes like the center console before disappearing into the distance again without ever having a confrontation, like a very long mist horn going off in the distance. You don't see the sea, you don't see the sky, it's just a block of gray mist. You're not even sure if it's an actual sound or you're just hearing your own tinnitus. If you get rejected for funding, you get an email. And immediately straight after, a monthly newsletter that is impossible to unsubscribe from. You just never get the chance to look somebody straight in the eye and say, no, you're rejected, ship's not gonna sail. I think this also taps into Nicholas Nassim Taleb saying, there's nothing more hideous than excessive refinement, food, dress, or lifestyle. Pasta is the best, basta. Staxibit L, the final one, um, it's called Perfection in 7 to 8 minutes and it's a Barilla mini penne with a gigantic penne inside. Kitten heels are the boiled carrots of shoes, to quote Orange is the New Black. Shoes, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how sophisticated our choices, no matter how good we are at dominating the odds of randomness, randomness will have the last part. I think you should embrace randomness as something new and beautiful and powerful. Nothing says Corona like eating food over the kitchen sink underneath a running tab that washes away the crumbs instantly while ugly crying. That's good, a new experience. Who would have thought that you would have home arrest in your adult life for a whole year? Fuck plates, fuck dishes. There's no shadow of a fucking doubt that there's real quality in being annoying. Sometimes you should be annoying because you deserve it. Stop interrupting me while I'm interrupting you. A watched phone never boils. Annoying people are niche players, in that they add some color to the discussion that always strikes me as eloquent. Being annoying can lead to a form of alienation that dooms one to be an outsider to one's own life, which is by definition an interesting position. It's not evil, but at least it's dangerous. I think the transition of epochs was something like this. We basically all transferred from we live in a society to no, you live in a society, I live in a meticulously created multimedia novel that nobody else is allowed to read. I find ideas that make you feel good very suspicious. If there's something that is like my preferred outcome for emotional reasons, I should be realizing that I have a confirmation bias. However, this is a very brittle vector. So I think what you should be doing is you should totally ignore the dimension of how you feel about your theory. It's not that you will advert it, you ignore it. It doesn't matter. In the positive, not. In the negative, it's completely irrelevant because you like the outcome of your thoughts. Otherwise, you cannot get to the tools you need to be able to disentangle yourself from how you feel about a result as a human being. So yeah, ignore your brain. It's full of shit anyway, mate. You're right, hun. Chapter 5. Dolce. Panna cotta tra tradizionale e fantasia creativa. I would love more and more science fiction from alternative histories. I think they should swap nationalities in terms of what if Silicon Valley was in Lombardy? What about a story about New York that had stayed Dutch but there was a fork in history where Belgium had taken over the Netherlands? A Belgian New York. Just imagine the 2009 Williamsburg IPA beer hype with a Belgian touch. My god. Fun fact about Belgium. Belgium was actually the first country in Europe to have economic growth after the financial crisis of 2009. Why? How? Because Belgium, in fact, did not have a government between 2008 and 2010, so there was nobody to fuck it up. Back to the Mediterranean tech hub. Twitter in Torino, Facebook in Firenze. What kind of social media would we end up with? Would it be social media with a Dionysian spirit that has always animated the South? Basically incorporating a shout button on every platform? 
non-functional, non-regulated, madness, fire and passion, invasiveness, it is time to deadlift in your garage. Die a warrior's death under the bar. Come back with your shield or on it. Godspeed, you magnificent bastard. The other day, I was at a gathering here in Berlin, so people got high and shit, club kids suffering a loss of identity for over a year, and suddenly one of them, the host actually, pulls out these like six bottles of homemade hot sauce and started lecturing us on how he didn't add vinegar to any of them and how acidity fucks up your stomach. So if you don't put vinegar in it, you can eat as much hot sauce as you possibly can. Still hurts when you shit though. At this point I said, whoa, how did I end up at this like cocaine hot sauce connoisseur tasting? God, this is really the cons testing the benefits. This obviously taps into randomness has the last word. A watched phone never boils. Reality is potentially dangerous, vinegar or no vinegar. That's why we spend our lives developing routines and building fortresses, habits and univocal mindsets. I think it's the randomness of these LARPs that can test the self-imposed boundaries and that can carry out an attack on our comfort zones. They represent acts of negotiation because they address and question our shortcomings. Besiege the stronghold of your own mind. Create a small consciousness outside of the city walls. Stab your inner gatekeeper in the back. If you come from inside the walls of your own mind, they will never see it coming, as gatekeepers are always faced outwards. Away from the fortress, away from the fortress of the univocal mindset. Experience the modern, classical, arrhythmic, atonal music of the abyss. Face ID should be incorporated into swiping and rejection on the web. So you don't even have to swipe anymore or do a dislike or a downvote. Potentially, it could even close the app as soon as you see a post by your ex-crush. Your eyes should show dismissiveness instantly and there's nowhere to hide. Infrared light reading your negative thoughts in subtle but swift eye movements. Lately, liberalism has really been showing its teeth online. It is this extremely white manufactured grin where the teeth are so white that they're almost gray as all the color has been desaturated out of them. These teeth actually look less alive than slightly yellow teeth. I think in terms of hotness, asymmetry will make a comeback. Will probably also mean that real life will be more interesting as it's easy to be handsome but hard to be hot. LARP is not cinema and neither it's theater. It is not a show that you can watch comfortably on your chair. No one will entertain you. There is no passive audience. Only your co-authors can do what must be done. I think that this is a difference between being intrinsically and extrinsically motivated. It's going to make the divide in the last phase of innovation in terms of personal life. I think being extrinsically motivated is probably something like demi-abusive. Extrinsic motivation climbs vertically in grand old trees, whereas true innovation, which represents intrinsic motivation, you want something, huh? you, want to, you don't want the result, you want to do something, you're intrinsically motivated. That's a high power chainsaw that moves horizontally, cutting the whole tree down. That's why elites are intrinsically opposed to innovation. It's a revolutionary power that renders your rise through the ranks worthless. With social media, this now goes for daily life. That's probably why a lot of edgy people are actually just boring and mean. They want to kick down from the tree as you try to climb up. Whereas weirdos are niche as shit. It's probably important to note here that playing doesn't mean winning. Playing doesn't mean losing. Playing means intervention without goals. Something to harness the allegorical power of narratives without any obligations and without honoring orthodoxy. That is what I think playing is. 
having nothing to produce, nothing to prove, no one to please or to account for, over-caffeinated with the goal to do nothing. Playing can be an antagonistic act. It's about choosing a creative gesture. This is why saying I'm a creative is so cringe. Who do you think you are that you have the right to who do you think you are that you have the right to play? There's probably no better feeling than being in a bar and somebody asks what you do and then you say whatever you do or whatever the fuck is that you have made up for yourself that you do as a public sort of face value interface to identity with the world. And then you ask them what they do and if they then say, I'm a creative, my day is fucking made. That's just the best thing. I think in the end, the meaning of LARP is found in her reciprocal relationship between like form and content. These aspects need to be constantly renewed. Stories have structural value, and that's basically what makes us human, right? This is also why storytelling is so popular in art academies these days. Choosing the right story means you are orientated towards the present. You're playing with the present, and you're taking these different elements, trying to make them into a dish that is funny and tasty. Pointing one's weapons at the target, choosing a battlefield. The need to narrate generates the LARP, not the other way around. Chapter 6 Café e degestivo, a ristretto of modernity. Of course it has to be said that none of these things make me apocalyptic with rage in even the remotest sense. I do think that Europe has been strangely old and dead, though. Demographically speaking, it's extremely old. We're not buying fridges anymore, that is a significant economic factor. Young, lean, Spotify, fashion houses relying solely on selling in China or streetwear, drain gang, UK drill. I should also make it clear that this ain't about some like European identity bullshit either. No, hell no. This is just this is just purely geographic. What's been happening in these places is all I'm talking about. Berlin became a meme. London is a joke. Paris is flatulence. The rest still stuck in the shite. I'm not about to shout fire in a crowded theater or anything. Nobody's gonna freak out about this. Nobody heads for the exits. Being smart about ambition and the art of living in the 21st century, I think that Europe needs to start doing what it's good at. Using pasta water in the bong. Time to introduce some universal basic spaghetti. Idiosyncratic, low-cost, value-driven craziness ambitious but rubbish. Being a boyfriend that never posts and being a girlfriend that tweets every nine seconds all at the same time. That will be a good offset against the AI technology driven round the clock full robotic factory lights out production going on elsewhere. Watch out though, it's hard to LARP as a boomer because it requires assets. Freaks to the front, please. And this is where I always come back to. Hedonism is an equation that people merely think exists out of the need for pleasure, but they forget it's offset by avoiding pain. A microdose of anesthetic against reality. Simply, old feelings in a new experience. That is enough. Sufficient. Art school. High risk, mediocre reward. Only talk to people that have image literacy. It is time to cut out all Gen X aesthetics. Sorry, that means you too, Kurt. That was it for March. As always, this podcast was influenced by friends, free jazz, Beval Gay, OG moments, shit posting, Twitter, Mark Blight. Nothing of this was me. I just put it in a shiny box. I hope it was not some oblivion level dialogue. Uh, I'm applying for a job at Doomsman Sachs next week. Wish me luck. I'll be wearing an outfit that predicted the 2008 crisis. Um, I hope uh, a trash bird will not sink the shitanic next week. Ciao, all y'all. Always working.
just like the fella said. Tell me quick, ain't love a kick.